This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. So hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm excited to introduce you to Jim Young. Jim is on a personal mission to help men defeat burnout. He does this through his coaching business where he is known as the Centered Coach, and we'll also be doing it through his forthcoming book entitled Expansive Intimacy, How Tough Guys Defeat Burnout. Here today to talk about that and so much more is Jim Young. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Jim. Mike, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and see what comes up from the conversation. Oh, I'm excited to have you here. And But I will have to begin with my opening question, which is always, tell me, Jim, where does your story begin? I could pick it up in a lot of places, but I'll pick it up when I was two years old, my parents got divorced. So before I even knew what my family was, my parents split. And the result of that was I really had, my father and I had very little access to each other. Growing up, I would see him once a week on Sundays. And it was, you know, we never developed a big relationship. I was raised by my mom, my sister, my grandmother. And as I've looked back at life and kind of how that shaped me, I think that's the right starting point because what I what then ended up happening for me was just absorbing the culture without a lot of guidance. And I think that really, you know, you, you mentioned that I, I do a lot of work around burnout. That's that's what got me there was not really understanding what manhood was about. And so just kind of going with the flow that was around me instead of staking my own claim to who I was and a lot of adapting to things that weren't me, not having any kind of guidance of like, yeah, you can be your own person and getting to a place where, you know, I just, I was doing things that weren't me for a really long time. Yeah. And I'm, I'm conscious of kind of when we're recording this. So as we're recording it, it's just a couple of days now before Father's Day. And it sounds like sort of not having that, that sort of male presence in your life at a very young age seems to have had a, a negative impact on you. Is that fair to say? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I didn't know what it was to be an adolescent male, let alone as I got into to manhood officially or whatever that threshold is. 
And, you know, I'm aware that, you know, Father's Day is coming up. I just mailed my dad a Father's Day card. He's still with us. And, and we have a good relationship now. It's still a little thin. We don't, we never really got into a deep relationship. I'm also aware that this is, you know, men's National Men's Health Week, which I only just learned this year, <laughs> the week leading up to Father's Day and how, you know, I've looked at that and said like, oh, okay, what, what was true for me in the ways that I just kind of interpreted manhood without any conversations about it, what I picked up from the culture. And a lot of it was, I knew I had to be a provider, a protector. I knew I needed to project strength. That was kind of it. And really like deep down, I was a sensitive kid. I love, you know, fooling around and, and making people laugh. And I shut all that stuff down. And so today it's, it's a lot more of like recognizing like, okay, what were those gaps? And like, what did I, you know, where did I give up for so long? It, it really wasn't good for me because I was, I was just following the crowd and missing a lot along the way. Yeah. And so when, well, I'm curious how you got into sort of, you know, coaching men and, you know, how this, you know, sort of drive to help men with burnout came about. But before we get there, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like when you were a kid, when you were thinking about going to college, what, what did you study? What, what was interesting to you back then? Yeah, I wish I had a good answer for you. Like, I think deep down inside, I wanted to be in a rock band or something like that. (laughs) I couldn't figure out the six strings on a guitar very well. (laughs) E-A-D-G-B-E. Yeah, I I knew that. (laughs) It's these guys that did It's it's how to to manipulate them to make something that sounds good. Yeah, that's the hard part. My mom was a really great guitarist and played in an all-female rock band in high school. And so that that was an influence for me. But I, I didn't have the talent for that. And really, I had no drive. I didn't know what I wanted. I just, I grew up in a a suburb of Boston where I think it was 92% of my graduating class went to college. So I was like, I'll apply to college. And I guess I'll apply to business schools because business is a good place to be. And then I got into college and I was like, well, I guess I'll major in marketing because my dad's in marketing. And I guess that's a good, like there's a job to be had in that or something. But I just never, I never knew. I didn't really think about it critically. I just followed whatever was in front of me. And I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, probably until my 40s. The so first time I gave myself permission to ask that question. Yeah, it's interesting. I had it in my head from the time I was 18 that I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And, and it's because I saw Silence of the Lambs. And I'm like, wow, that seems really interesting. <laughs> and then you know, that was my path. And when I graduated college, you know, someone said to me, you know, don't go to your doctorate program right away, like work for a year. So I took that advice. I got a job working in advertising and marketing. And and then I was like kind of bit by the advertising and, and marketing bug. I did wind up going to business school, but not, you know, not not graduate school for psychology. And and even then I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do in marketing. You know, it, it took me a while to figure out, hey, how can I use these people skills, these conversational skills I have? And then I wound up becoming a, a focus group moderator, which felt like a real calling for me. But it took a while to get there. It's like, I, I think we have, I have three kids in college right now. And it's like, they're so stressed out about not knowing what they want to do. And I, I keep telling them, I'm like, it's okay not to know. Like, it's normal not to know. Like, we expect you, what, at 18, 19, 20 to, to know what you want to do for the rest of your life. That's crazy. Sometimes they listen to me and sometimes they don't. But it is a little, a little nutty. It's a lot of pressure to put on people. I've got three teenagers as well, 14 or three teenagers, 14, 17, and 19. And one's in college, one's hitting senior year of high school. And, and I've really been trying to impress upon them for the last several years 
that there's no one path. And in fact, you're probably going to have at least three careers in your lifetime. So don't get too wrapped around the axle about what courses you take in high school. It'll get you the right college. It'll get you the right internship to the right job. Like discover, you know, take a little bit of time and see what, what really fits for you. Yeah. Yeah. And so when, when you did hit your forties, what was the epiphany? What did you decide you wanted to do? Yeah. <laughs> I like the word epiphany. I wish it were that. It was more crash and burn. <laughs> you know, as I look back on it, I was somewhere on the burnout spectrum for several years. And I finally hit red line in about 2013, 2014, maybe. And I got divorced. My job was just completely eating me alive. I was, you know, just, you know, everything kind of fell apart all at once. And it took me a while then to, to do this rebuild of like, okay, I got to find a new place to live. I got to figure out how to be a parent to my kids half the time. I've got to rediscover social connections. I kind of lost a lot of friends in the process. And eventually I, you know, I, I did all that stuff first and dealt with mental health. And then I got to a place where I was like, okay, the job is part of what's killing me here. Like I'm trying to do this thing. And, you know, I was a president of a tech company working 60 hours a week, trying to you know, have a life, raise kids. And I finally, you know, put up the white flag and I said, I, I got to get out, you know? And, and so it was less of a, like, I guess there were a couple of shining moments along the way, but it really took me a long time to realize like, okay, I got to put that thing down, even though it's really scary and then see what's next. And that happened over, you know, a few different steps. Yeah. How did that burnout manifest itself? I mean, do you think it was, you know, I mean, obviously it's, it's probably a, a result of, you know, the stuff going on in your job, on your personal life, things like that. But how did you feel it? How did you experience it in your body? It was just a dead weight. It was almost like I had this, you know, anchor sitting inside me where I was dragging myself around. And, you know, there were times where I really felt like I had tunnel vision, like I could only focus on what was right in front of me and everything else was just kind of foggy. You know, the getting up in the morning was tough, getting, you know, getting focused on anything was difficult. I'm a really even tempered guy. And I noticed that I was, you know, I was a lot, you know, I was on edge a lot of the time and just really, I think the dead weight feeling was probably the, the piece that I, I ultimately realized like, oh, this is wrong. Like this isn't, this isn't normal. It's not just, I'm tired. Right. So this is part of the uh, crash and burn. I take it. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a whole <laughs> crash. Like the weight was just slowly dragging me down. And then I, eventually I thudded against the floor. Right. So what happened next? How did you get yourself off the floor? Staggeringly would be one way to describe it. I took a month leave of absence from this job that I was in this high pressure role, thought, okay, I can hit a reset button. And I came back and I felt a little bit better, but I was pretty quickly back in it about a year later, less than a year later. I quit that job. I was going to go off and do my own thing, you know, just be able to create my own schedule. So I was really feeling torn. I couldn't, couldn't be with my kids enough to do my job. Well, I couldn't, you know, I needed the job to be able to take care of my kids. So I, I was about to go off into self-employment and then I realized I wasn't ready. I took another job lasted about a year and a half. And that was back in burnout again, pretty quickly. And then one day, about four years ago, I walked into my boss's office with a resignation letter and no plan. I just, I knew I just needed to pull the ripcord and just go and then figure it out on the way down. So, I mean, you had, you had no plan, you had no job. I mean, how, how did you feel after doing that? I mean, do you feel like a weight was lifted or was another weight created? 
It was equal parts terrifying and exciting. I had a little bit of money, you know, in the bank that I could I could afford to make that leap, but not a lot. I probably had six months of living expenses that I could I could burn down. And I was at first just so relieved to have some time to decompress and I really needed it. I worked part-time. I did some contracting work for about six or eight months, a couple of days a week while I just figured stuff out. And it was scary. It's funny. I used to say when I was in college, people would ask me what I was going to do after college. And I said, oh, I'm going to work for myself. I'm going to you know, have my own company. I had no plan for that. I just I liked the answer. And when I finally got to that place in my you know, later 40s, I was excited, but also like, oh my God, there's so much to figure out. And so it was, it was this, you know, a little bit of terror, like, am I ever going to be able to create a job that suits me? Am I going to be able to make the money I need to support my family and my retirement and all that? And like, oh my God, I get to do this work now. I get to dig in and focus on the things that I love the best. So it was, you know, it swung back and forth quite a bit for those early months. Yeah. So tell me about sort of your path to building up a coaching business. Yeah, I started with what I knew and what I had experience in. So I did a lot of business coaching early on, worked with some people from my network or once removed on helping them grow their business and do leadership coaching for for them and for their teams. And I enjoyed that. And I did that for a couple of years and had some good success with that. But as I kept doing it, I realized that I wanted something different. And the people who kept finding me were looking for something different. And a little over a year ago, I realized like majority of my clients are men, almost all of them. And most of them are executives or owners of businesses who are burned out. And I was like, oh, right. That's my person (laughs) because that's who I was. You know, I think, you know, in, in this field anyways, I think it's true in a lot of fields, like you can be most helpful to people who are two steps removed from where you were because you've gone through, you have the empathy for what they're going through. You've got some lessons that you can share. So oftentimes that's who's finding me. And, you know, I found like, oh, those are the rewarding clients. Those are the people that I just love working with. Yeah. So it's almost like you didn't find the market necessarily. The market kind of found you. Yeah. 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 And I think the way that came about was I just started being myself finally. Like I put down all the pretenses of what I thought it was to be a real man in the world, that I had to be tough. I had to you know, earn a certain salary, I'd have a certain status. Like I put all that stuff away because it, it never really fit me. And I just started being real and vulnerable. And I would write blog posts that were just my unfiltered story. And I started getting on you know shows like this and being able to just say like, hey, here's, here's what my experience is. And I know it's not for everybody. That's not the point. It's that, you know, I've, I've got a story that some people connect to and other people don't. And I want to help anybody who's, you know, who sees something in that story. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're never going to connect with everybody. Yeah. Nor should that ever be the goal because then you won't connect with anybody. (laughs) If you're trying to, you know, please everybody. My mother used to say you can please some of the people some of the time, but not all the people all the time. And there was like another part to that that I totally forgot. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like my mom used to say that too. And I feel like there was another part as well. (laughs) Knowing my mom, it was probably crass, but... (laughs) Well, tell me about the book. I mean, you have a book coming out. I believe it's slated for publication in September. Is that right? Yeah, it'll be out in September of 22. And I didn't, you know, over the years, I toyed with writing books on different topics. I remember my oldest child asking me when I told them that I was going to write this book, they asked like two different things. Like, are you writing about this? I'm like, oh, no, I forgot about that. You're writing about, no, I'm not doing that either. 
I, I really realized last sometime last year, really. And this was like seven years after I, I first hit burnout. I realized like, oh, I'm not burned out anymore. And I haven't been for a little while. And then what, what happened? And I was seeing a lot of stuff in, in the media, the zeitgeist had burnout floating to the top. And a lot of it was women talking about burnout and people talking about women's burnout, specific books targeted towards that or articles towards it. I was like, well, where's the stuff for guys? There's general, there's women, but there's not a lot for men. And I know a lot of men are burning out. So I decided to write about it. And I looked at, you know, what did I do? I, I kind of retraced the steps. I'm like, how did I get out of it? It wasn't a big bang moment. There was no epiphany for that either. And what I discovered along the way was that the radical shift for me was I had started developing intimate relationships with a lot of people across a lot of areas of my life. And, you know, that's where the title comes from. It's expansive intimacy, which is, you know, speaks to across the entire landscape of our life, we can have intimate connection. There's obviously like the intimate romantic sexual connection that we usually think of with that word. And that's an important element. But there's so many others. You know, you're a parent, you've got intimate connections with your kids, I presume. And, you know, with friends, with colleagues, there's all sorts of ways we can experience it and across a lot of different ways that we can be intimate. So I really wanted to write about that. It's not a topic that a lot of guys, you know, probably have heard. Yeah. And I mean, it, to me, it also speaks to like this transformation you were having inside when you're talking about sort of writing about, you know, becoming vulnerable in your writing, which I think is sort of, it's a cost of doing business for writers. I mean, you have to open yourself up to vulnerability, but there is this, you know, I think this traditional, you know, the traditional view of men is you're not supposed to be vulnerable. You have to be tough. You have to, you can't show emotion because then you're going to appear weak. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of these like really, I mean, these notions have been, you know, they've been in pop culture for, for years. And I know they are changing now, especially with like a war on like toxic masculinity, which I think is something different. But how did you go through that? I mean, how did you open yourself up to vulnerability? Because that certainly does take a risk. I mean, is there like a secret weapon uh, there or how, how did you do it? Yeah, the secret weapon part of that question is interesting to me because as I went through starting to write the book, I was like, all right, I'm writing about burnout and expansive intimacy. And as I started going through it, I realized that there was this other piece of the book that had to be written. I honestly didn't really want to write it, but it just it just kept popping up and it was shame. And so confronting shame, like the shame that I don't measure up as a man was at the core of my burnout. It got me into it. It kept me in it. And it also kept me away from the kind of relationships that I wanted to have with people where I could be vulnerable. And so I'd say if there's a secret weapon, it's dealing with the really uncomfortable feelings of shame and like going into like, where do I feel like I'm not blank enough Mm -hmm. where shame lives? I'm not rich enough, smart enough, good enough, whatever. And I just kind of knew that I had to do something really different than what I'd done for a long time. And a lot of what I'd done for a long time was to hide the places where I didn't think I measured up. And so I was just like, screw it. Like, I'm just going to stop pretending. I'm just going to be my full honest self and see what happens. And it was unbelievable. Like I got so much positive response from people. I built so many incredible new friendships, connections. I, I got into, I don't know if we talked about this earlier, but I got into improv comedy. I do live comedy shows once a month with a group of people and we have an amazing time. And I never would have done that before. I wasn't funny enough. I wasn't whatever enough to do something like that. 
and it's it's one of the thrills of my lifetime to get to do that. So I just kind of balled everything up that wasn't working and said, screw it, I'm going to try something completely different. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I think of improv comedy and I've done a fair amount of stand up over the years, which is I know it's a completely different art right. form. It's very different. I've, I've done a little improv training, too. But the one thing that I know from improv is, you know, obviously collaboration, teamwork. Yes. And but also, you know, making yourself vulnerable is a huge part of it because there's there's obviously no script. Yeah, there's some rules, but, you know, there's rules, there's games. But but there's no script. So you're vulnerable. You're constantly relying on yourself to come up with, you know, something to keep something going. And it's hard to do that unless you're really in tune with who you are. You know, all of those things where you felt less than and you buried you. I don't think you can keep them buried if you want to be successful kind of at improv. And the other part of it is, you know, being able to live and act in the moment versus worrying what's what you just said or what you're about to say and stressing out. I see you nodding your head. Am I do I, am I onto something here? Totally. Like I have to be unguarded in order to be in the flow of, of an improv scene or a show. And my old perfectionist tendencies where I have to have the plan, I have to know what I'm going to say three sentences from now. That doesn't work in improv. If if I try that, and I and trust me, I have like early on, like I would do scenes because I like I have this idea and I'm going to make it happen, and it would just fall apart. Is that I just have to trust that whatever we got going right here is all we actually need. And if I'm just myself, then my scene partner is going to have a lot more to work with, and they're going to make me look good because they're going to be real with me, and it's going to be a it's going to be a cool encounter. Like we don't, you know. I said you're braver than me because you've done stand-up. The job of a stand-up comedian is to make jokes that make people laugh. The job of an improv comedian is to do lifelike relationship moves that are just human, and that makes people laugh because human beings are inherently funny when they interact. Yeah, We just try to be real with each other, and so I, I have to be unguarded. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that you point that out. I always thought that, you know, from a stand-up's perspective... <laughs> You know, I had to have things, kind of bits kind of written out, you know, aside from the crowd work stuff you do to, to get warmed up or to get the audience liking you. Yeah, pretty much you have you have your routines in your head, you know, you've, and you know what works. I mean, if you've done it enough, you know, hey, if, if you're dying at one part, you got something in your back pocket to win people back. So there's a little bit of a safety net there. I think with improv, it's just like, wow, it is all in the moment, you know, and it, it's I mean, something that I want to explore more, you know, now that things have opened up again. We have a local theater here in Connecticut where they do improv once a week and you could just drop in I don't know, for like 20 bucks or something and join. So that's, uh, that's on my list of things to do this yeah, year. I've done a show or two down there. I, have you really? Theater down at CT. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting. But what do you think you learned the most about yourself from, from doing improv? Uh, that's an awesome question. I think it's that I, I have something no one else has and it's all I need. My primary improv teacher talks about it as your Eunice, Y-O-U-N-E-S-S. Like we all have this individual set of qualities that nobody can replicate. And if I can show up as that person, everything else will be, will work out from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really kind of trusting in yourself, like really believing in yourself and trusting that, you know, I hear it in time of business, trust the process, but it really is kind of a trust the process, you know, and, and trust your partner. Yeah. And it's, it's peeling away the layers of what you think you should be. 
all that social conditioning that we've gotten over the, the decades that says this is what the rules are, whatever, you know, however you want to think of it, like peeling that stuff away and just getting to the core of, okay, this is who I really am. I'm sensitive. I'm silly. I, you know, I like to be the butt of the joke, you know, as a way to get laughed, like whatever it is, right. We all have our own thing. And I'm usually the straight man in my show. It's me and five women and they love to pick on me. And I, you know, I, I love it because like, I know what we're in service of. It's all in kindness. Um, right. What do you, uh, what do you call yourselves? Do you have a troop name? Yeah, not in charge. Not in charge. And you're clearly not in charge. Uh, we're all not. In charge. <laughs> <laughs> we're all a bunch of super like hyper responsible people. We we're trying to come up with a name. One of our members said, "Not in charge." We're like, yeah. "Yes." <laughs> yeah, I'm well, curious. Like thinking back to your your prior lives, right? Whether it's your former spouse, your kids, your the former the people you used to work with, you know, the big tech company. Would any of them have been surprised that you have found a, a passion in improv? I don't think so. I also don't think that they would be surprised to look at my current work and say, oh, that's what Jim's doing. Because what I was doing all along under the, you know, behind the scenes where it was, you know, whenever it was safe was I was checking in with people on like how they were really doing. And I was trying to keep things light and remember that, you know, even in times that feel really difficult and dark, we can find some, some ways to, to laugh a little bit. In fact, we need to in order to keep going, especially in a world that, you know, seems to grow crazier by the minute, you know, how do we bring some light into that? How do we enjoy the existence that we have and how do we stay connected? Yeah. I always say laughter is medicine. And if you can make something humorous, if you make something that's scary, humorous, then you, you take a little bit of the fear, you take a little bit of the power of that fear away, which is why I, you know, which is why I tend to, when I write fiction, I, there's always a comedic element to it. Because a lot of times the stories I come up with are rooted in some kind of fear, maybe some kind of insecurity. You know, I'm trying to deal with some kind of like real issue, but through fictional writing and humor just kind of comes out, you know, really as a probably like a subconscious way of me just trying to a have a little bit more control over my world, but b also build a world that I'd want to live in. That's a little bit less scary than the world that we have. Yeah, as long as I can stay away from the sarcastic side of comedy, it's a really great coping strategy for me to use laughter. Yeah, the sarcasm is definitely something my wife, you know, will say all the time. She hates it when I'm being sarcastic or she can't tell when I'm being sarcastic. And, you know, it, it is, you know, for better, or for worse, uh, sarcasm is something I can speak very well. Yeah. And, and sometimes it, it's suitable for me. And oftentimes what I've discovered about myself is because I've always had a good comedic lens on life, I've tended to use sarcasm as a veiled way of revealing my discontent or my anger. And, you know, just trying to be clean on that more and more so that, you know, people, people can laugh with me and feel safe. Yeah. Well, I've got a few fun questions for us. And again, these are all under the, the spirit of getting to know you a little bit more. And I, I like to do that starting off with pop culture. So I'm curious, uh, Jim, what, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were growing up? Oh, my mind immediately goes to the nine squares of the Brady Bunch opening. <laughs> I'm a huge Brady Bunch fan. I've, I'm sure I've watched every single episode of that show multiple times. Is there, um, is there one of the characters on that show that you identify with more than the others? For some reason, Peter jumps to mind, even though I'm not a middle child, I was a baby, one of two kids, but he always seemed to be just a little bit like a little different. Maybe he was because he was left-handed or something, but uh, <laughs> he seemed to, to just be a little off center compared to the other kids. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's interesting because, you know, if you say Greg, you know, you, you might uh, appear as, as the star, but say Bobby and Bobby really didn't add much to the show for me anyway. I know he became like a race car driver like later on and like, oh, really? Yeah, they did. Well, they did like, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, they did like a Brady Bunch reunion type thing and everyone was coming home for Christmas. And the big secret was that Bobby was a race car driver and they had to hide it from the parents. But yeah, the parents had some secrets of their own, of course. But or Sam the Butcher, that would have been an interesting one, I think, if you said Sam the Butcher. I think I could have dug a little bit deeper on that. But I digress. So Brady Bunch, anything else come to mind? I was a big sports fan as a kid. As we're sitting here talking, I'm holding a baseball and, and twirling it in my hands. I loved this weekend baseball on Saturdays. I would, I would, you know, park myself in front of the TV to pre-internet days, pre-cable TV days, so I could see yeah. all different stars from different, you know, teams, you know, once a week. Did uh, do you remember a show called The Baseball Bunch? Were you around for that? Vaguely, yeah. It was like a kids program in the early '80s, probably Saturday morning. I think Johnny Bench was in it. Maybe Tommy Lasorda came on a few times, but I'm remembering that from my childhood. Yeah, that's a yeah. nice combo too, right? From Brady Bunch to Baseball Bunch. Yeah, that's right. You got a hunch you're going to like the Baseball Bunch. I got the theme in my head right now. <laughs> Who's your team in baseball? I'm a Red Sox fan. Died in the wool been since, since I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. You may not appreciate this. I went to the Mets game last night where we got decimated <laughs> by Milwaukee. Yeah. <laughs> it's two Mets games I've gone to this year and we've lost both of them. But I told my son, I'm like, we can't go anymore. We're, we're, we're not good. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have to go to an away game. You know, we'll, we'll see how we fare there. See if the rules change. But how about musical artists? What were you listening to growing up? Oh, what I was listening to growing up, my mom being a, in a rock band, I listened to, I remember listening to Jackson Brown albums of hers when I was five. And I remember she was a big Journey fan in the 80s. And, and so that was in there. But I became a, a hair metal uh, oh, yeah. later in my teens, you know, late 80s. Give me uh, some band names. Who'd you like? Oh, I mean, the first one that I remember listening to was Motley Crue, like before they even, you know, be, kind of became popular. You know, Bon Jovi, White Snake, you know, all those. But at the same time, I was also listening to rap music at the time. I, I don't think it's even called rap music anymore. It was, it's hip hop now. I remember going to a public enemy show at the Providence Civic Center in like 1986. Yeah. Yeah. They actually, to bring those two worlds together, I remember hearing Anthrax and Public Enemy do a collaboration on, oh God, what was it? Not I'm the man. That ought to come to me in a minute. But I'm like, I was blown away by that. You know, it's like, God, you're mixing rap and like thrash metal. I'm like, this is probably some of the coolest sounding stuff I've ever heard. Because I like both those worlds too. Growing up, I was a like huge Houdini Run DMC fan. And then I got into metal. And then, you know, Beastie Boys for as you know funny as they were, they really did some cool things by sampling some like Zeppelin songs and, oh, and some yeah. other songs. Paul's Boutique is one of the best rap albums of all time, if you ask me. And yeah, another one is Guru, who later on did a um, an album that he called Jazzmatazz, and it, it mashed up jazz and hip hop and so good because I'm also a big jazz fan. And yeah, I love I love exploring all music these days. A lot of a lot of Foo Fighters, Gary Clark Jr., Leon Bridges. Just a whole bunch of stuff. I'll listen to almost anything except for 50s doo-wop and hardcore country. <laughs> the yeah, the modern country isn't bad, but some of that outlaw stuff's a little uh yeah. can be a little much. Of course, if you play it backwards, you know, you get your house back, get your dog back, get your wife back. Yeah. It was Bring the Noise was the song I was thinking of by Anthrax and Public. Oh, Apple. sure. Bring yeah. the noise. Oh, very cool. So, you know, thinking about the book Expansive Intimacy, how tough guys defeat burnout. 
in what ways, if any, has has writing that or has writing in general, you don't have to just think about the book, um, has writing in general been therapeutic for you? That's a great word. Like it's been so therapeutic for me to go through the, especially writing the book. I've written for for a while in blog and also journaling for for years. And actually journaling starting several years ago was really therapeutic. I just, I wrote, I wrote for like a year every day on patients. I had a journal called patients and I would just write in there. And so like learning life principles through writing and then really exploring my stories. Like when shame popped up as I was writing the book, it was like, oh man, I really don't want to. And I really need to, like, this is a place where I get to now dig in and learn a lot more about myself. And even though I've done a lot of therapy work over the years, a lot of coaching work with, with others, I had a lot more to, to do. And it's, you know, it just continues to free me up from places that I, I know that I get stuck and realizing, okay, why is it? What do I need to do differently? So yeah, it's, it's been cathartic at times. I can, you know, very easily say this is my first book because I've never written a book before. I'm pretty sure it's not going to be my last one. I've loved the process. No oh, good. Very good. And just kind of related to that, when you're staring at, you know, a blank sheet of paper or a blank computer screen, how do you feel like what emotions do you feel when you're when you're in that situation? I have yet to hit writer's block or whatever people want to call it where that blank screen is intimidating. It's it's a canvas to me. It's like, okay, cool. What what do I get to create? I've never been artistic in the way of, you know, drawing visuals or anything like that that blank canvas of a computer screen for me is where I get to create and I get to tell stories and, and I get to dig into ideas. Speaking of like mashing up with music, one of the things I love to do the most is take topics and like, see how they fit together, like burnout and intimacy being opposite ends of a spectrum. What do you, how does that make sense? And, and then I discovered like, oh, okay, that's how it makes sense. Oh, and there's this other topic in the middle. And there were others I could bring in like masculinity or capitalism. And that's for another book probably. <laughs> That's right. Um, but yeah, it, it excites me to think like, okay, what can I create here? What what ideas can come, you know, come through me? Yeah, that's awesome. And last one is if you can go back in time and whisper some words of advice into your younger self, what would you tell, you know, the younger Jim? You know, does maybe it's that two-year-old who you kind of open up this conversation with, or maybe it's a little older, but what would you tell your younger self to, you know, what, what advice would you give them? I'm seeing my like 13 year old self when I was starting to really form ideas of independence and identity. And, and I think what I would tell or write in that letter is something like, don't let shame steal your identity. Cause for a long time, I think I allowed that. I allowed myself to think, you know, I don't measure up. I've got to, I've got to fit in with the crowd and I couldn't just claim who I actually was. And yeah, I'd, I'd want that kid to know that. Cause I think it would have shortcutted a lot of things that I've, I've found later in life. Yeah. Well, I imagine as, as people are listening to this, I'm sure there's a few guys out there listening who says, you know what? I think I need to talk to Jim. I think I need to get some time on his calendar. How can people reach out to you? How can people find you, Jim? Yeah, the best way to find me, one and only place that people really need to know is thecenteredcoach.com. I don't do a lot of social media. I'm on LinkedIn under the same moniker, The Centered Coach. You search for that there, but the website will get you to, to me for sure. Very cool. Well, Jim, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for coming by and corking a story. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's been a really great time. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, 
Please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.